The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to episode 14 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. This time around, we are joined by a man with some stories to tell from his days in the hallowed halls of the Guide to Comics, and his journey that led him to become one of the writers on the long-running series, Robot Chicken. So please welcome to the show, Mike Fasolo. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Excellent. Now, we got in touch here because when our recent guest, Doug Goldstein, was on, he suggested that we reach out to get your story, where he was referring <laughs> to you as my friend Mike, and that you, quote, know where all the bodies are buried. Uh, so I am curious, just how did you two meet, and what kind of dirt do you have on Doug? Ah, just around, but, but Doug kind of tells one version of the story that, that you were very shy, and he wanted to make sure that he well, was your buddy and your friend in the office. So let's see how well your story lines up with his recollection. Well, just from that description, I'll tell you, it doesn't line up very well at all. <laughs> but I do have all the dirt on Doug, and I'd be happy to tell you, but it'll, it'll cost you. It might that be was going to say, that'll be for our Patreon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty much when I first started at Wizard, I was the, uh, the research guy. So I had to find all the pictures and photographs and whatever they needed for, you know, uh, pictures in the magazine. And when I first got there, my office was basically a closet at the top of the stairs where they kept all their comics. So whoever came up the stairs, you know, could look right in and see me doing whatever I was doing at the time. And so I spend my days up in the closet pulling comics for, you know, people that needed things and refilling the ones that had come back in. And Wizard being, you know, the very friendly place it was with lots of, you know, people walking around and everything, they would come up the stairs and if they hadn't, you know, seen me before, they'd pop in, introduce themselves. I mean, even Garib would stop by every now and then just to say hello. Oh, wow. Uh, I think on my, my first or second day, he, he came in, you know, introduced himself, uh, welcomed to me to the wizard fold. And uh, yeah, so that's what people would do. They would just come up and say hi, except for Doug. <laughs> Doug would come up those stairs and he would come up multiple times a day. And every time he would come up, he would duck his head and rush around the corner. And, you know, after two or three times of seeing this, I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't, didn't know, you know, did I do something wrong? Did, a, did I offend him in some way? But no, he would come up and this went on for, for weeks. He would never say hello. He would never wave. He would never do anything. And eventually, you know, after I, you know, I got to know a few people, I was like, you know, what's up with, with uh, Doug? You know, why doesn't he ever say anything? And their response was just always, well, that's just Doug. But, you know, after hanging out with everyone else and, you know, becoming part of the group. He eventually did acknowledge my existence. Uh, but I do like to remind him of those early days now and then. He, he doesn't like to acknowledge that. He's always like, oh, no, I was super friendly. But no, he was just Doug, and he ignored me for quite a while. <laughs> oh, wow. That, I mean, that is quite a way to meet somebody. <laughs> yeah. So now, before we go on, though, we, we want to go back in time. We want to discover the reason you ended up working at a comic book magazine in a closet full of comics, as you put it there. So please tell us, Mike, how did comics enter your life? What is your origin story? Uh, the old origin story. Well, I guess it was really my, my cousins who introduced me to the world of comics. They were nine or ten years older than me, and whenever I would go over to their house, you know, we have a family gathering or something, they always had comics just 
all over the place, you know, Archie and Richie Rich and Spider-Man and Hulk and, you know, basically everything that was around. And, you know, being a, a little kid in a house full of adults, you know, I was just kind of always in the corner doing my own thing. And when I had the comics, it was great. I could just get lost in that world and, you know, nobody bothered me and I didn't have to bother anybody. So I just thought, that, you know, reading all those stories were great. The heroes duking out with the bad guys, it just really, really sucked me right in. And, you know, then when I got old enough to get my own, I'd bug my mother for a dollar or so because, you know, at the time when I was getting comics, they were 30 cents, maybe 50 cents at the most. So you could, you know, get a couple of comics every time you went to the store. And I would just go down to our local convenience store and dig through the racks and, you know, pretty much read anything I could. Did you have a favorite as time went on? Was there like either whether it was a creator or a specific character or was it always kind of just you'd like to take it all in? I like to take it all in. You know, I, I read, you know, Legion of Superheroes, you know, all the Avengers, the Defenders, anything I could get my hands on. Probably my favorite, though, uh, were the Uncanny X-Men back in the day. My sister, when she was in school, they used to do these for their school fundraising thing. They would have to go around to people and get them to sign up if they wanted to buy magazines or whatever. And also included in that, they had you could order comic books. And one of my friends was was big into X-Men. And it was, this was just after, I think, the Dark Phoenix saga had come out. And he would always be telling me about, you know, how great these were and, you know, the, the whole stories and everything about that. So, you know, I signed up and uh, I'd been getting in the mail X-Men for, geez, I don't know, I think I started in probably the 130s. And I went all the way probably up into the 200s or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, so stuck yeah. with it. Yeah, I, I, got, I got a couple of long boxes at home in my, my parents' attic just sitting there waiting to uh, one day dig them all out and, and <laughs> go through them all again. So then as you're reading that, again, it continued. It doesn't sound like it necessarily dropped off for you. So what was involved then in starting a job at Wizard around 1994? Well, I graduated college in 92, and I just you know puttered around doing a few random jobs here and there. I was taking orders for a book company. I worked at a company that actually made library card catalogs back when they had card catalogs in the library. <laughs> so that kind of ages me right there. But a friend of mine, Mike Searle, who worked at Wizard, he was the one of the editors at Inquest. This was uh, obviously before Inquest started. But he had a job there. And after a few weeks, he found out they were looking for a researcher because Dan Riley, I think, was moving over to the marketing department. And he knew that I knew pretty much everything there was to know about comics. And he went in, he told them about me, and they called me in for an interview. And uh, I do remember that, that that when I went in that that day, I you know was dressed in a suit because that's what you dress for when you went for a job interview. And I was feeling a little out of place seeing that all these people in jeans and T-shirts and sneakers and running around with Nerf guns and stuff. But it was great. And uh, you know I went in, had the interview with Hank Bordowitz, I believe it was. And yeah, they, they liked me, they liked uh, my resume, they liked my credentials, and they pretty much offered me the job right then and there, and I started a couple of weeks later. So you went from card catalogs to comics catalogs, <laughs> essentially. I did. <laughs> <laughs> from the interviews that we've had already so far with some of the later era wizard staffers, you know, everybody that would come in for an internship, they were put in the research department, right? Like, that's where you started. So for you at this time, though, where were you king of the interns? Was there any glory for you in being head of the research department? <laughs> thing was, it, and in my day there, they didn't have interns. We we had we had one guy, Phil Colligan, who would come in 
you know, when he could after school. And he was the only one who was helping me. Like I know that, that in the years years later when the magazine got big and they had Toy Fair and, and Inquest and all that, they had it they did have a team of interns that could run around and do all the stuff. But it was pretty much me and Phil doing everything. So was there any glory? Mm, well, glory might not be the right word, but it was great. I mean, I had a great time doing all that stuff. And it doesn't seem like it would be a hard job, you know, just pulling pictures for articles on, you know, whatever story the magazine was writing about. But you also didn't want to use just any random picture that people had seen forever. And in those days, that meant going through all the issues to find those great iconic shots. Because unlike today, you couldn't just go to Google and type in, oh, Superman and get 10,000 pictures that you could choose from. This was this meant going through every issue, finding the good shots and the, the best pictures that you could put in the magazine that would really draw the reader into the, the article. So you really took pride in it. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'll just grab this one. You want Superman? We got a Superman over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should find something here and there. No, it was good. It was it was a lot of fun. And, you know, of course, I'd be up there by myself going through all these issues and you know, invariably, I would start reading the actual comics that I was supposed to be just flipping through. <laughs> and I would end up sitting there for hours, you know, going through the, the stories that I'd read hundreds of times, but still having the best time when I was up there. So you mentioned, you know, just the the later era, you know, and really just like in this period is when the magazine was really growing. What for you signaled that Wizard was kind of really the big time where they had become kind of the center of comics news and, and journalism at that point? Uh, it was really, I guess, kind of the conventions because, you know, in the, the mainstream comic book world, comics were just kind of blah, like not everybody knew about them. But Wizard was something that could, could draw everybody into it. And then when you went to the conventions and saw, you know, thousands of people descending on this place all there to see all the stuff that, you know, kind of remained hidden for the, the mainstream people, it was fantastic. And seeing, you know, the wizard booth and everybody would come to the booth just to see us who, you know, nobody knew, but they came because they knew the magazine. And when you saw the lines of people just waiting to spin the wheel or to, to win a half issue or to get a, you know, a free copy of the magazine, you realize like this is something huge that everybody's latched onto. It was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, Wizard obviously had many spin-off magazines as the popularity grew. And you mentioned earlier, you know, one of those was Inquest magazine. And it's interesting because you were in the research department, but you eventually go over to Inquest to become a writer when the magazine launches in 95. So were you already into role-playing games or did you have to learn about this world of fantasy in order to actually report <laughs> on it? Well, I mean, I knew the world of fantasy. Like I'd been into fantasy novels and I, I dabbled a bit in D&D and I played all the like even the old text-based games like Wizardry and Ultima which which I loved and I guess could be considered the first RPGs. Yeah. But yeah, I mean I knew the world and up in research was great, but I wasn't really delving into the comics and writing, which is what I really wanted to get into. And when Inquest started, you know, I guess I threw my hat my into the ring and, you know, they were like, sure, come on on, give it a try. So it was Mike Searle and Pat McCallum who really were, you know, the head guys over at over at Inquest. It was kind of a learning curve. Because I didn't know too much about, you know, all the games that were out there, the board games and the, the card games and stuff. But this was kind of a trial by fire, even for the magazine itself, because nobody knew what was going to happen. And this was just around the time that, that Magic had come out, and that 
you know, really launched us in the magazine into what it became. Yeah, because I think, you know, I, obviously there is a lot of crossover with that gaming side and comics readers, but at the same time, for me, who was more a devoted, you know, wizard reader and toy fair reader, when I went back and started looking at Inquest, Inquest, I mean, they lasted almost <laughs> to the end of the magazine. I mean, they, they were there at just as big a publication. Obviously, it was very popular. So what would you say it was about Inquest? Why did it hang on? Did you notice that initially as you're writing that it was selling a lot of copies? Was that, hey, we're going to keep doing this? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, like I said, it came out just around the time that Magic did. And when Magic became the biggest card game that practically ever existed, we had been there at the beginning. So we were the ones that had been reporting on it from the start with we would design our own decks and put the decks in the magazine. And it was, you know, one of those things, right place, right time. But it was amazing. And when you saw the popularity of it, it was, you know, on par with what Wizard was with comics. I mean, they're certainly passionate, those gamers. I will tell you. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> So I had a friend, you know, junior high. He's showing me Magic the Gathering around 94 when it comes out. He's like, you got to have your mana. You got to have this. I'm like, you lost me at mana. I don't, I don't yeah. know how to play this game. But then I remember at this local comic book shop, we walked in one day. And of course, they had their gaming table set up. There's these guys playing Magic. And they're like, you can't use that card. You can't use and they basically get into a hockey fight. They're like grabbing each other's shirts. And I was just like, wow, this is intense. This isn't just passive gaming, you know? Yeah, yeah. They got heavily into it because, you know, Garib's parents had the comic store and on, I don't know, whatever night it was, Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever they decided to do it, they'd open up the back room and have, you know, just magic tournaments. And that place would fill up immensely. You'd have lines out the door of people waiting to get in. It was it was amazing at how popular it became in such a short time. When we talked to Doug, he actually said that some of his favorite memories of his time there were just sitting around after hours of well into the <laughs> night playing Magic the Gathering with his co-workers. So what do you recall about these research sessions, if you will? <laughs> were you a part of this crew? I, yes, I was a part of that. And it was, it was a blast. I mean, it was usually on Friday nights when we would do it, um, and the office would close down, and everybody would go home, and, and just the handful of us who had to, you know, test the games would tear into the starter packs or booster packs from the game companies because they wanted us to have everything. So they would send us tons and tons of these packs just so we could test out all the decks. And we'd order some pizza, and we would just play. And this would go well into the night. You know, sometimes, you know, we'd be there till you know, one or two in the morning just playing these games and we'd trade up the different decks and we'd find out the best strategies because at the time there was no strategy guide. So we had to figure all this out on our own. So it was great just playing these decks and figuring out what was the best way to use it. And then you know, when you found out, oh, this this deck works great for here, then we could take that and put it in the magazine for other people who needed some help with their strategy. Yeah, now the only time, you know, I personally tried to get into this world of gaming was when Marvel introduced their Overpower <laughs> card game. So I'm curious to get your opinion, because, you know, it was featured on the cover of Inquest several times. So Marvel's Overpower, in comparison to Magic the Gathering, <laughs> how well do the mechanics uh, play between the two? Uh, well, honestly, I can't remember anything about Overpower, which <laughs> I guess says, says everything there is to say. I, I'm sure I played it. I'm sure I played it multiple times. But, you know, just thinking about it now, I honestly can't remember anything about the game. It was, you know, obviously not quite as popular as Magic, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, Magic was king. 
for me, ultimately, it came down to, well, I just want to collect the cards because I liked Marvel Universe cards, but the art wasn't as good on the overpower cards. So I was like, eh, I think I'm over it. <laughs> but speaking of all the gaming in general, Doug also wants to know who was the best at Mario Kart back in the day? Oh, boy. Well, that, without a question, is me. That was one of the games that we would play, I would say, every night before we all went home. We'd, we'd sit down, usually in Pat's office, and we'd all grab our controllers, and we would go through all 16 races of the original Mario Kart 64. And I would say, basically, I kicked all their asses all over that board. <laughs> me and Yoshi. That was my guy. Me and Yoshi. <laughs> Now, the other thing, too, is, you know, we've heard, you know, through all these different interviews about the many pranks often between, like, the Toy Fair office and the Wizard office, but was InQuest ever involved in these shenanigans, or were they, like, the quiet guys in the corner? Like, what was going on? They pretty much stayed to themselves. The InQuest guys never really got involved in the in the main pranks, but even though I was an InQuest guy at the time, I was always included in the pranks to help out the Wizard side. So whenever one was being planned, I'd get a call to come and help, you know, whether it was to tinfoil an office or to spend literally five or six hours blowing up hundreds and hundreds of balloons to shove in somebody's office and close the door. <laughs> yes. It was, uh, we, we had such a great time thinking of all these stupid things to do. Like I think the tinfoil one, we spent an entire Saturday and I don't know how many rolls of tinfoil, literally putting tinfoil on every wall, on every surface, wrapping up their pencils and their action figures tinfoiling the shelves the windows the blinds everything it was a crazy time but it was a lot of fun so mike what other hijinks do you recall from back uh, in the well, day the, the, probably the x-lax brownie story was one of the best ones but also one of the worst worst pranks ever i actually wasn't in the office at the time but i knew about it and i won't say who but someone decided that it would be funny if they brought in a few trays of brownies that had been laced with x-lax and they put them on the water cooler and of course, anything that was on the water cooler was free game for everybody. And it's a bunch of bunch of guys hanging around. So they decided that this was going to be a very funny thing. And they informed certain people not to eat the brownies. So there was a handful of people <laughs> not to eat them. And what you have to know is that the whole the wizard offices were laid out. They had one downstairs bathroom, a men's room and a women's room. And the downstairs bathroom had one stall and one urinal. And the upstairs bathrooms had two stalls and, and two urinals. And, you know, everybody dove into the brownies. And as the day progressed, people were running in and out of the bathrooms. And eventually it just got so bad that there were lines of people outside of the bathrooms waiting to get in. And, of course, there was no room. So there was lots of, lots of uh, finding, trying to find some way to, to hold it. People running up and down the halls, up and down the stairs. People were running outside the building. It was... <laughs> It was absolute chaos, and um, he eventually came out who did it, and you know he had to apologize. But it was one of the, one of the guys, Bob Marshall. He was our price guide editor. He had eaten, I don't know, probably three or four of the brownies over the course of the day. And after it was all over, and you you asked him like, Bob, why? What what happened? He goes, you know, he could tell you that even after he had eaten the brownies, he's like, they were terrible. They tasted just awful. And we we're like, well, what did you eat? 
four of them for? He'd be like, oh, they, well, they were free. They were there, so why not eat them? <laughs> but that was that was a lot of the reasoning that people had. It was free, so why not eat it? But yeah, it was it was chaos. They they had the men's room obviously filled up, so they just went into the ladies' room and were fouling that one. It took a while to get the stench out of the hallways. Oh, I mean, you mentioned you guys are basically a frat house, so you yes. expect that from any '80s frat movie, right? Yep, yep, it was. It was. It was a lot of fun. I was glad I wasn't there for it. <laughs> but yes, I heard about all the the aftermath of it. Now, after your time at Inquest, you moved back over to the Wizard side then to start writing about comics again. So, what was the reason for that? And maybe what was your favorite assignment in the years that followed when you were back mainly at Wizard? Uh, well, I mean, I knew the comics world better. You know, I'd been living and reading about these characters pretty much my whole life. So, you know, if someone came to me and was like, "Hey, I need a oh, how much Superman's Fortress of Solitude." key ways and i could just pull it out of my my head which is exactly half a million tons just in case you were curious hey, there you um, go. <laughs> but it was a little harder on the inquest side with the board games because i knew them but i didn't know them that deeply so if someone you know came to me asking how much it cost to cast this rare card or who drew the you know the art for that card or who was the the box cover artist on the whole set i'd have to you know find some way to dig up the files or call the companies. And I don't know, it, it was it was a lot more effort to, to put into that, which which was fine, but it was still not as easy as I had it in the comics world. As for my favorite assignment, yeah. my favorite assignment was a little tiny little section called If You Missed. And I'm sure you've you've seen it if you flip through the magazine at some point. And it was really just a one or two sentence summary of a handful of comics that had come out the month before that they stuck at the bottom of pages, you know, just in case you had missed that issue. And it was it was so great to go home with a stack of comics and get to read them and then, you know, just write up a you know, the little Cliff Notes version of what happened in the issue. So it was literally the dream job. All of us who wanted to work at Wizard was just like, just reading the comics and then like writing just a little bit about it, but they yep. pay you to read them. And they paid me to do it. Yes, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> that was my favorite section. I really enjoyed doing that. Now, Wizard, like we were talking about, as it became more and more the focal point of, you know, breaking news and everything else, they had contact with all the big names and publishers. Is there a particular comics pro who stood out for you for better, for worse, there was just like of your time there, it's just like, oh yeah, this guy. Garth Ennis. He's he's really mm. the one that, that comes to mind pretty quickly because he, he was super nice and, and super willing to chat. Like I didn't have much contact with, with him over the years, but I remember I was doing something, a piece on Preacher or some background check for someone else and I you know, had to call him up out of the blue and you know ask him some question we needed the answer to and he was just super friendly and open and willing to just sit and chat and even after the interview was done we just sat and chit chatted about what was going on in the comics and i tried to get some information on what was coming up in the future although he couldn't tell me but it was just great to just sit and talk to this guy like i'd known him for for years he was just a really really Super nice guy to sit and chat with. Yeah, g given the uh, the weightiness of the subjects that he tackles in his stories, that's <laughs> yeah. good to know. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, there there is this strange video of you from this era that is on YouTube. It's on Buddy Scalera's YouTube page, in fact. It's it's Buddy, it's Arlene So, and you, and you guys are doing a bit. You are sitting at some, like, news desk or something, and, and you're being this person who is apparently able to type 500 words a minute on an invisible typewriter. So do you remember the circumstances of this silliness like in other wacky moments stuff like that uh well this wasn't actually something for wizard this 
this was something uh, for a public access show called Comics Vision that Buddy and I did back in probably 95 or 96. Oh, cool. Way back in the day. And this was just after Buddy had gotten there. And he'd actually been doing the show for a while. He was doing it with uh, a couple of his friends, but his co-host ended up getting pregnant, so she had to to leave. And by that time, I'd gotten to know Buddy in the office, and he's like, hey, you want to come on and be the the new co-host? And I was like, sure, you know, how hard can it be? It's sitting there talking to Buddy, and we'll have a good time. Now, I don't know if you remember the Brady Bunch episode where Cindy goes on TV, and when the little red light comes on, she just freezes. Right. That was pretty much me, the first <laughs> the first episode <laughs> we did. So Buddy was trying to, you know, get me involved and getting all animated and talk about the topics, whatever it was that day. And he kept trying to bring me into the conversation. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I agree with that. That was, that was good. And I would give him one-word answers and just nod my head and not, didn't know what to do. But anyway, that was at the very beginning of, of this. And after a few weeks of, of us uh, being on, on camera, I loosened up and we had such a good time just being stupid on the show because it was his dream to just do a show talking about you know everything there was about comics. So we did that. And after a while, we were always looking for little time fillers on the show. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I used to always brag that I was the fastest typist in the world. And Buddy's like, sure, we'll get you, we'll put you on the show and we'll show how fast you can type. <laughs> so we did the the fastest typer in the world. And, and to this day, I don't know why, if we had planned this out, why we didn't have an actual typewriter there or you know, some some other at least prop that looked like a typewriter. So I didn't just have to you know, be typing on the ridiculous invisible typewriter. I'm going to post that on the social media because it's just, it's so silly. You're just like, wait, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, the, the show, the show was a lot of fun because it was just us, you know, talking about comics and movies and everything. And, you know, Buddy would go out and do man on the street interviews. And one of his more popular ones was he just find random people on the street and be like, who's your favorite X-Men? And these were all people who didn't know anything about what was happening. And they'd be like, what? And they'd ask him all these questions about who are you and <laughs> why are you doing this? And what's an X-Men? <laughs> why are you asking me about it? Dang, okay. So yeah, still not in the pop culture yet. Yeah. He, he still has all those episodes somewhere and he's very, very slowly transferring them over to a medium that he can actually put up on YouTube. And doing the show actually led to him and I writing a couple of our short films, which uh, were dubbed the B-Files. They're just half hour little little movies that we had written uh, take off of the X-Files because at the time that was another huge thing. Oh, the first one was about people being turned into sandwiches, which (laughs) agents had to figure out what was going on. And that one was actually shot all at the wizard offices. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when we had other people involved, Doug was involved in that one. He played director Skinny. Uh, Lars Pearson, he was another one of the wizard staffers, and he was the cigarette smoking man's character. And Dan Riley and Arlene So and Dan DiGiacomo and I think Brian Cunningham was a part of it. We even had Nelson DeCastro. Yeah. And Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor in the second movie just as little bit parts. They were like policemen or I think Nelson was uh, like a Columbo type detective. <laughs> and that was great. We had a, we had a blast doing that. That was, yeah. Fun. I hope buddy could get those out there someday. <laughs> Cause that, that would be super fun to see. Now, uh, speaking of wackiness, Doug also suggested we inquire as to whether or not you've been attacked by a gorilla. Can you confirm or deny this? I would, I would like to deny this and forget it ever happened, but yes, it is, it is 100% true. I was attacked by a gorilla, although it wasn't a real gorilla. 
This was, uh, I don't know, around 96 or 97. A bunch of the Wizard guys were living in the house in New City. It was Pat McCallum, Andrew Carden. I think Brian was there at the time. And it was around the time you could see the, the Hell Bob Comet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Andrew came down to my room one night and he's like, hey, have you, you know, have you seen the comet? And I was like, no. It's, he goes, hey, it's really super clear out. We should go get a look. Goes, I'm going to go grab my camera. So I was like, OK. So we headed outside and in our backyard at the time, it was a huge backyard that stretched on forever, full of trees and bushes and typical backyard stuff. So I headed out outside and I found a nice spot where I could you know, see the sky and I'm looking up. Suddenly I hear the kind of like a little, uh, like a little grunting, a huffing somewhere off in the in the dark. I didn't think much of it at first because, you know, there's always wild animals, little raccoons and, and skunks and stuff walking around. So I'm, you know, looking up and I'm seeing if I can see the comet. And then suddenly I hear the, the huffing and the, the snorting again. And it sounds like it's getting closer. So I'm looking into the darkness, you know, maybe it's a raccoon, maybe it's a deer or something back there. And then I hear this growl and this howl and something huge just leaps out from behind a tree <laughs> and comes right for me. So... I take off. I don't even want to know what it is. I take off and I'm running back to the house and I slipped on some leaves and I go plowing into this patio furniture. Everything's going flying and I'm up a second later and I practically dive into the house. My heart's hammering. I'm terrified. And I see Andrew standing in the living room just on his knees laughing hysterically. And a second later, this gorilla comes staggering through the door, falls on the ground, takes off his head and it's Pat. <laughs> so yes pat and andrew had planned this whole thing they thought it would be very funny to terrify me which they did so they i don't know how long they uh had laughed at this thing and it went around the office and everybody you know made fun of me what are you running from a gorilla for <laughs> like, it's the middle of the night and something jumps out of me i didn't see it was a gorilla but yeah, so at the time i didn't think it was funny but you know looking back it was it was a pretty good prank you know this mythological creature out in the woods it could have been bigfoot you know <laughs> Uh, but there's there's another mythical personage, you know, in the wizard offices who apparently was able to make himself known to you early on. But we have to ask you now, as we ask all of the guests about this man, this myth, the big cheese, Garib Seamus, cool or fool? I would probably have to go with cool. I mean, I didn't have very much interaction with him during the course of the day. He was, you know, always dealing with the, the business side and he would go and talk to Pat and Brian and all the, the editors and the, the head designers and stuff. But he was always very nice. He always said hello. He always was very pleasant. And even after I'd left Wizard um, and if I saw him at a convention or if I would stop by the office and he was around – he always remembered me, and he was always uh, there to say hi and chit-chat and find out what was going on. So, yeah, I'd have to go with uh, Garib Seamus Cool. Yeah, it's, it sounds like if you were there within the first five years of the magazine, Garib knows who you are. <laughs> but anybody beyond that point, it's kind of like it gets a little sketchy. He's going to introduce himself to you a few times. <laughs> yeah, it got big, and he wasn't always in the office anymore. So he knew the, the main crew and well, when it was much smaller, but after that, he probably lost track of all the uh, the people coming and going, especially all the interns who would just pop in and out for the summer. Now, uh, how long were you there all told at Wizard? I want to say it was seven. I think it was seven years. I started in 94. Yeah, I went to 2001. Because obviously you eventually joined up, you know, with Doug Goldstein, with Matt Senreich, you had Tom Root, you know, you guys get together 
you head out to California. What can you tell us about your involvement with Toy Fair, Twisted Toy Fair Theater prior to that, and how you got to join uh, the group there? Well, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd left Wizard, yeah, like I said, in 2001, but I was always still super friendly with the guys, and I eventually ended up working just five minutes away from where the Wizard offices were, so I was always still stopping by the office. And when I was there, I didn't have much to do with Toy Fair. I may have suggested some ideas for, you know, Twisted Toy Fair Theater or maybe written some jokes for the word balloons. And I'm sure that at some point my head appeared on an action figure doing something ridiculous. <laughs> But yeah, other than that, I didn't didn't have too much to do with Toy Fair, but I was always very friendly with the guys. And when they started Robot Chicken, they were like, why don't you come out and write with us? And I was like, OK, you know, I was at the time I was working uh, at a lumber company just answering phones, which clearly wasn't what I wanted to do or wasn't very exciting. Did that pay better than Wizard? Is that why? <laughs> Uh, well, I left Wizard because uh, this is another. <laughs> Let's hear it. So it goes goes deep. In probably around '97, uh, we had gone to one of the conventions, and everybody had to have some job there. So at one point in time, I was put on handling the credit card machines and taking the money from the customers coming in. And for some reason, the accounting department was like, oh, he knows how to deal with money. So let's offer him a job in the accounting department. Now, of course, I was terrible with math and I didn't really know what I was doing, but they offered me a lot more money and the hours were much better because when you're working in editorial, if you know you get behind or if you're on a deadline, you're staying until the magazine is done. Sometimes that would lead till you know midnight or, or later. When I got up to accounting, my first day there, Ed Dupre, who was the CFO at the time, comes in. He goes, "Mike, you know how much overtime we work here?" And I was like, "No, how much?" He goes, "None. At five o'clock, you're out the door." <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, this seems like a, a pretty good deal." And it was much less stress. You didn't have to worry about you know meeting your deadlines or getting any of this stuff done. So you know, I stayed in accounting for quite a while, a few years. You sold out, Mike. I did. I did sell out. <laughs> I did sell out for the money, but you know, I was still in the same building. Building. I became what they called one of the upstairs people, which is where they had all the accounting and marketing and advertising people. But I could still go to lunch with all my friends and still hang out with them and still see them. So it wasn't it wasn't too bad. Uh, of course, I wasn't great at the job because I really didn't know how to do accounting. Later on, toward the end of my career at Wizard, the accounting department got some new computers and. All I did was set them up and hooked them up to the network and installed the software. And again, they were like, holy crap, he knows what he's doing. Let's make him the, the in-house IT guy. <laughs> so I became the computer guy at Wizard. And again, I was terrible at it because I didn't know what I was doing. I took a couple you know, computer courses, but they didn't help with all the, the stuff that needed to be done. I could restart a computer. I might be able to you know, zap the PRAM at the time and fix little things. But you know, the main problems, I would still have to call in a real IT guy. So eventually, even that part of it got too stressful, and I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. So put in my resignation, and uh, I left. That's so interesting. Okay, <laughs> so, so now you're working at a lumber company. The guys <laughs> say, come on out to California. Come right with us. I was out there with the very first episode. They had written... I think like the the basics of it. But yeah, we, we all came out. We got our offices in Santa Monica and it was all of us just sitting around getting things ready. You know, I was I was doing research for him. I was pitching I had some ideas. And while the show was being written, the animators were in the back animating it. And I mean, obviously, the, the way we do it now is much better. Now the show is written. We're in there probably two or three months before the animators even come in to start animating. So we have a big time 
difference between writing and animating. But at the time, they were writing the episode as the animators were animating them. So it was chaos toward the end because it's like, oh, we, we need episode nine done and we're not even done writing it. But we learned a lot from that very first season. Now, do I understand correctly that you also get to do some voice work on the show? <laughs> so did you get over your shyness or is it just easier to be behind a mic? It's easier to be behind a mic, but it still, still kind of gets you because when you're in the booth, you know, you're in front of the glass and you're in front of Matt and Seth and everybody, oh, the, the sound engineer and all that who's there. And you got to put on a good show. And sometimes it's it's kind of hard to do on the spot. I've played myself a couple times, like in the last the last season. I don't know if the, the episodes are out yet. But uh, yes, I've played myself. It's usually just random characters that they're like, oh, we need a voice because we usually have to do you have to sign a person like three voices. And in one episode, I had to play myself. So then I had two other random voices. I think I was a paper mache rock at one point. <laughs> I think it was the Holy Grail in one episode. <laughs> a lot of inanimate objects. Yeah, I mean, they're all just stupid, you know, one-liners. Sometimes I would get involved and do, like, the, the Walla Walla in the background of just people yelling in here and there. But it is always fun when, when they, they're like, come on down to the booth, we need you. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a lot of fun. Now, did you guys end up staying in touch much with the, the Wizard guys as the show started getting more popular, as it started growing? I mean, was there much involvement there or given, you know, Toy Fair, Wizard, anybody exclusive interviews? like, Or was it kind of like, hey, we're, we're kind of moving forward on this train now and that's where we got to go? I keep in touch with a handful of people from from the old wizard days buddy scalera russ wooten greg orlando and obviously all the robot chicken guys now during your time there and obviously the magazine eventually fizzled like so many magazines but what changes overall did you notice in wizard or did you keep abreast of uh, as the years went on it was weird because when i was first there and the magazine was small it was kind of like a frat house it was just a bunch of guys in you know their mid to late 20s who were having fun with you know reporting and doing everything on what they loved you know comics and toys and card games and everything and there was a lot of work involved but it all got done and it was always a sense of fun and energy around the office no matter what someone could just randomly you know jump into your office start firing away with a nerf gun and that would start a nerf war so everybody would kind of break down in the middle of the day and have this big nerf gun fight but toward the end of it you know later on in the in the 90s it seemed to kind of stopped. The magazine was growing. Inquest was big. Toy Fair, I think, was the time. I know they were doing a lot of specials, too. And it just seemed to get kind of more, I guess, business-like. So now if you jump into somebody's office and start firing away at a Nerf gun, they'd be like, don't you have work to do? <laughs> it, uh, it changed in that way that it just it got more, more business-like. I mean, it was still fun, and everybody had a good time, but it was just seemed more subdued. Now, did you personally keep any, like, mementos or swag from your time at Wizard? <laughs> I have a few things. At one time, and I don't know why we got them, but at one time we got jean jackets with the oh. big Wizard the Guide to Comics logo on the back. And I still have that hanging in a closet somewhere. <laughs> well, if you, if you ever decide to part with that, I will tell you, we have a collection of wizard shirts. We got an autographed hat with the embroidered logo. Like, we, we collect the ephemera of wizards. You know, we, I got to see if I can find one of those wizard credit cards someday. I don't know. Oh, if you, yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I probably have that somewhere in a box in my parents' uh, attic somewhere. But yeah, I had, I had my old baseball jersey when wizard had a softball team for. Yeah. I have a bunch of the half issues and I have most of the, you know, the action figures that, that Wizard and Toy Fair did, you know, Kitty Pride and She-Hulk, Reverse Flash, all those. 
They had a bunch of them just collecting dust. Well, that's that's awesome that you have at least kept them, that they do exist still. And, and by, while you mentioned the uh, the softball games, in issues we just covered, it was the first showdown. What can you tell us about those events? The softball games were a lot of fun. Uh, it was usually either after work or on the weekends. You know, we were not the best team. We had some really good players. You know, people the the people who were really into to sports. Jim McLaughlin was great. Uh, Joey Anarello was great. But the rest of us, you know, just being a bunch of nerds, were yeah, you know, we were, we could handle our own. But that was that was about it. And just getting together with the whole group and being out there having a good time was the best part of it. You know, there was no. You know, oh, you suck, get off the field. Eh, everybody had a good time. And if, if you weren't that great, you know, nobody really cared that much. You know, this is the 30th anniversary year of Wizard. How would you describe the legacy of the magazine? Either what it meant to you or just what you see, you know, as, uh, you know, as people look back and if it ever comes up in conversation for you, how is it remembered? Oh, it's, it's remembered very, very fondly. Any Anytime... You know, a handful of us get together and, you know, if something from the wizard days comes up, we will just go into the whole reminiscing thing and talk about all the, the good times we had in the office, you know, especially the pranks, all the cardboard stand-ups that we had, all the posters and talking to all the people. And I think the magazine itself just inspired people to do what they, you know, what they wanted, what they loved with the comics, because it was a magazine that was made for comics fans by comics fans. So it showed them that, you know, the comics and superhero world weren't things that they needed to, to hide and only keep to themselves because, you know, they'd be called nerds or geeks or whatever. They could be something mainstream and they could take part in it. And it was a place where people like them could go to work with others who loved the same things they did. So they could talk to, you know, the creators and the artists and everybody who they admired. And that, you know, I think inspired them to, to do and become what they what they wanted to, maybe even, you know, creators themselves. I mean, for me, it was it was basically my second home. You know, it was where I got my start and I got to play in the world of, of comics and card games and toys and everything that I love doing. Yeah, I mean it certainly wouldn't be where I where I am today without without the Good old wizard days. So speaking of which, so what are you working on these days? Where can people find your work? I've done a couple of, you know, episodes of, you know, Spider-Man and SpongeBob and just things here and there. Doug has a new show out, Devil May Care on sci-fi. Right. Uh, I wrote an episode for that. Uh, I do a podcast with Russ Wooten, uh, all about time travel movies and TV shows. It's called Marty. It stands for Mike and Russ Time. Yeah. That's available on Apple Podcasts. Nice. All that things. Yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. That's just me and Russ getting together, talking about all our crazy time travel nerd stuff and having a good time. Well, Mike, it really, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for those <laughs> stories. So many stories. These are these ones we have not heard before. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, and there's others. You really did deliver. We know that your co-workers are really going to get a kick out of this, <laughs> in addition to the readers. So well, I hope so. Mike, it really was a pleasure, and thank you all for listening once again to this installment of the Wizard Files. We are so enjoying gathering these stories, each and every one of the Wizard staffers have a unique point of view, and if you were there during the great X-Lax brownie debacle, then we want to hear from you. So be sure to reach out. You can email us at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com, DM us on Twitter at wizardscomics, or Instagram at wizards underscore comics. But yes, in this 30th anniversary year, we want to collect 
collect all the stories to get a well-rounded picture. And hey, Garib, if you're listening, reach out to us, buddy. We gotta get the big cheese on here. In the meantime, for the rest of you who are enjoying this series, you might also enjoy our main podcast, Wizards, the Podcast Guide to Comics, where every Wednesday we bring you coverage of a full issue of Wizard Magazine, and the next week we bring you a mini-episode covering everything we just didn't have time to get to in our Wizards half series. Plus, we have a lot of bonus episodes coming up involving some of these special issues like The Dark Book, The Beginning of the Valiant Era, How to Collect Comics, ooh, a Wizard special edition through Toys R Us. So much more to come, and if you are enjoying what you're hearing, spread the word. Tell your comics-loving friends. And until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.